Well, how many of you have uh, ever heard of the phrase, they won the battle, but they lost the war? I see a few hands and a few heads nodding. Well, it turns out uh, that the origins of that phrase aren't completely known. Uh, But what is known is that it is often used to describe a Greek general some three centuries before the birth of Christ. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, his story. The year is 282 BC, and the people of Tarentum, a Greek-speaking region in the, the heel part of the Italian peninsula, they find themselves on the brink of destruction. So they've gone to war with uh, Rome, and their loss seems all but certain. And so in the year 282, uh, they reach out uh, to a guy named Pyrrhus. Uh, It's a last-ditch effort. They send about a a bunch of messengers 100 miles east across the Aegean Sea and over to Greece, uh, where they ask this Greek general uh, to come and help him. And and you should know two things about him. Uh, First... Uh, He is uh, one of the greatest military generals uh, in his day. He's considered such. Uh, Second, things aren't going so well for him at home. And so he sees this as an opportunity uh, to get away and to perhaps carve out for himself uh, a little territory over in the Italian peninsula. And he sets sail uh, with an army of 25,000 soldiers. 25,000 soldiers and a corps of war elephants. And when he arrives in Italy, he engages the enemy, 20,000 Roman soldiers, and he defeats them. And he's so successful that, uh, in fact, he's actually able to advance within 50 miles of the city of Rome. And, and that, that is one part of his story. Uh, but the other side of his story is this. Uh, each of his battles are incredibly bloody. You know, historians aren't exactly sure Uh, how many casualties they were, uh, but they are convinced that the casualties were about the same number on each side of these battles, so much so that it is said that although he won the battles, he ends up losing the war because his victories are won by such small margins uh, that they're essentially losses. A fact uh, that drives him back to his Greek homeland, uh, where he ends up dying about a decade later. Uh, And this is why he has also been described as one of the greatest of the unsuccessful generals in human history. And his uh, name has given rise to a term that we still use today, a Pyrrhic victory, a victory uh, that's won by such small margins that it's essentially considered a defeat. I found myself uh, thinking about him this past week as I was uh, putting together this sermon and considering uh, our gospel reading today, especially Jesus' words in verse 34. See, after a rather heady conversation with a scribe, a Jewish religious leader, uh, Jesus looks at this man and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far, but also not in. And it made me wonder if uh, this man might just have won a battle, but perhaps lost the war. So that brings us uh, to today's reading from Mark chapter 12. And this is probably as good a time as any to remember that uh, Mark structures his gospel very intentionally. 
Uh, he structures his gospel to answer the question, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? Is he the messianic king that God has promised, the one who will come and bring God's kingdom into our midst? And, and maybe you remember that Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. And then Mark uses the first eight chapters of his gospel uh, to show us that Jesus has power. Uh, he's got power. That's what he shows us during his first three years of ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee as he preaches and teaches, but also as he helps and heals, as he feeds the hungry, as he casts out demons, as he performs all sorts of miracles for all sorts of people to see. And the people, they take notice that Jesus has power. But it gives many of them the wrong impression about how Jesus is going to use his power to become king. And so in Mark chapters 9 and 10, there's this transition. Jesus pulls his disciples aside, and he tells them how he's going to use his power to become king and bring God's kingdom here on earth. And, and what he tells them is that he's not going to do it through military force. He's not going to do it through a show of strength. Instead, he's going to do it by suffering and dying on the cross by becoming a servant you know, three times uh, Jesus tells his disciples, and three times they respond with fear, with confusion, and then with a whole bunch of objections. And, and this launches us into the second half of Mark's gospel. Now Jesus is going to show us, not just tell us, but show us how this is going to happen. Here's what you need to know. Uh, the first half of Mark's gospel uh, takes place, covers three years of Jesus' life and ministry. The second half of Mark's gospel covers a single week. That's why in Mark chapter 11, uh, we find Jesus on Sunday and Monday of Holy Week. On Sunday, he enters Jerusalem. On Monday, he enters the temple courts. He kicks out uh, the money changers, and in the process, he upsets a whole bunch of religious leaders, religious leaders that go on to look for a way to trap him. And that's why in Mark chapter 12, uh, on Tuesday, uh, where we find Jesus in today's reading, uh, these religious leaders are looking for a way to trap him with a series of questions, and it starts, it starts with the uh, Herodians and the Pharisees. They ask Jesus, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and either way, Jesus answers, uh, it's a trap. He's going to get in trouble, but if you know this story, you know that Jesus evades the trap, and that leads him to the second group of religious leaders that are out to get him, the Sadducees. And and uh, they ask him the question that looks a little different. If a woman gets remarried, uh, if her husband dies and she marries another man, whose uh, wife will she be in the resurrection? And, and once again, you might remember that this is a trap, that Jesus evades them. And that brings us to today's reading from Mark chapter 12. A religious leader, a scribe, overhears these conversations. But here's what's different. This religious leader, this scribe, uh, notices that Jesus has some really good answers, and because he's got really good answers, this scribe, this religious leader, has got a question for Jesus. Of all the commandments, he asks, which one is the most important? You know, I love the way that uh, Jesus responds. Maybe you noticed. Uh, this religious leader, the scribe, wants to know which one commandment is the greatest, and Jesus responds with not one but two commandments. I mean, 
You could be a pastor. But you know what they are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe, he agrees with Jesus' assessment. He approves of the kind of answer that Jesus has, and so Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, he's not far, but he's also not in. And maybe it makes you wonder, you know, has this man won the battle, but perhaps lost the war. And now, truth be told, there's a, a whole lot going on in this reading. Uh, but I believe that there are three questions, uh, three questions that reveal how God is using a reading like this to shape our lives as we follow Jesus on a day like today. And those three questions uh, go like this. Uh, first, is this man asking a genuine question? I mean, does he really want to know the answer, or is he trying to trap Jesus? Second, uh, we all know how Jesus responds. Love God and love your neighbors. But what other options did Jesus have as he responded? And third, this man is close, but he's not in. Why is that? Three questions uh, that I believe reveal uh, how God might be using this passage to shape our lives as we follow him. And so first, uh, is this man asking a genuine question? You know, the more that I think about this question, the less convinced I am. See, on the surface, uh, it looks like it's a genuine question. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. This man overhears two groups of people asking Jesus questions. It's clearly the case that he is trying to trap them, but he responds really well, and so this man has a question of his own. Uh, but then I want you to consider this. Uh, when he asks this question, he doesn't just ask Jesus. He interrogates Jesus. That's the, the verb that Mark uses to describe what this man does, and it's the same verb, the same Greek verb, uh, that Mark uses when the Pharisees and the Herodians try to trap Jesus, and it's the same Greek verb that the Sadducees use when they try to trap Jesus. And so is Jesus being genuine? And then you consider the fact uh, that uh, the parallel passages to this story, Matthew and Luke, because Mark isn't the only one who tells this story, the parallel passages are pretty critical of this man. See, they don't say that uh, he tried to ask Jesus or interrogate Jesus. It, they say that he tried to test Jesus. And so once again, is this man genuine? See, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's almost like uh, Mark is trying to get us to identify with Jesus. Are his motives genuine? Maybe, but maybe not. Yet, uh, at least for me, this just reminds us how often our motives are genuine. I mean, sometimes, but not always. I mean, sometimes we come because we have heard this good thing that Jesus has said, and we want to know if that good thing, that good news, might just be good news for us. And other times we come to Jesus with a question, a question uh, for which, like this man, we already seem to have an answer. And so are his motives genuine? It's hard to tell, but that just points us back to Jesus. Jesus, uh, who welcomes this man despite his mixed motives. 
Jesus who listens to this man, even though his question might be a trap, and Jesus who takes him seriously, even when this man might not be taking him as seriously as he ought, uh, it brings us back to Jesus because this is exactly how Jesus receives us. And so, uh, is this man's motives genuine? It's hard to tell. A second, uh, what other options does Jesus have uh, when he responds? And, and this one's kind of fascinating for me. You see, uh, this man's question actually is a pretty common question. I mean, there are 613 commandments recorded in the Old Testament. 248 are positive, do this. And 365 are negative, don't do that. And this man wants to know which one is the most important. Or, or to put it another way, he wants to know which of these commandments should I use to organize the rest? And Jesus gives a, a pretty common answer. He says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is the answer that the great rabbi Hillel had given less than a century earlier from Deuteronomy 6. And, and Hillel, he goes on to say, you know, the rest of the commandments, they're just commentary. But Jesus, he adds uh, Leviticus 19.18, he says, also to love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, I could preach a whole sermon on this, how loving God and loving your neighbor uh, is something that seems simple but is far from easy. Uh, but the question we want to know is what other options does Jesus have when he responds? And, and the scribe is the one who actually gives us the answer. You see, he looks at Jesus after he responds, and he says, your answer, loving God and loving your neighbor, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, uh, love, love is more important uh, than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. It's more important than obedience. It's more important than holiness. It's more important than performing these kinds of rituals. And it's not to say that these things aren't important. It's just to say that God doesn't want us to use them to organize our lives. He doesn't want us to organize our lives uh, around these things, uh, around being right, around dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's, around distinguishing between who's in and who's out. He wants us to use love to organize our lives. He wants us to use that as we follow him. And, and when it comes to this one point, what we discover about this scribe, this religious leader, is that he wins the battle. He's got it right. So why is he close, but not in? At the beginning of my sermon, I told the story of a Greek general by the name of Pyrrhus, that he was known for winning the battle but losing the war. And, and when it comes to our faith, now the scribe in today's reading shows us that there is a real risk in doing just that and winning the battle, but losing the war, assuming that if we get one point right, even the most important part, uh, that we've gotten it all right, or that somehow we're in. You know, that's what this scribe, this religious leader, he does. He gets one part right. Uh, he knows the most important commandment. Uh, maybe he even lives it out, uh, but that's not how you enter the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God because the king invites you in. And the king doesn't invite you in because you know the most important commandment. The king doesn't invite you in because you live it out. 
The king invites you in because he loves you. You see, love is more important than obedience. It's more important than holiness. It's more important than being right. And we see that in the way that our king uses his power. I mean, that's what Mark's gospel shows us. He uses his power to lay down his life, to suffer on a cross, to die for people like you and me so that we might have a place with him that we might be invited in, so that, that we might live in his kingdom right now like it's a reality. And you know, uh, it was 50 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus that the Apostle John put it this way. Now, you heard it a little earlier uh, in the readings. We love because God first loved us. God first loved us. That was the war, and Jesus won. And the way we organize our lives, the way we follow him is simply a reflection of that reality. It's a witness that even though we wait, his kingdom has come, and his kingdom will come, and we are his people, and it's from that place and no other that we live out his commandments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.